This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. This is the show that you are listening to on 3RRR. My name is Mel Cranenberg. Coming up on the show today on Backstory, we're just doing crime, heaps and heaps of crime. We're going to be talking about Sisters in Crime 18th Annual David Awards, uh, which is an incredibly long, long list. I think it's something like 27 books are listed. Some of them are quite surprising, uh, includes nonfiction, fiction, um, all sorts of things going on in there. The head judge wrangler, Jackie Horwood, uh, will join me to talk about the list. Um, and also about women who write crime, plus Ellen Davitt, the 19th century Australian mystery writer that the award was named for. She was apparently Australia's first mystery writer, and I'm kind of a little bit pissed off that I actually really didn't know very much about her. Uh, given, you know, Fergus Hume and the mystery of the Handsome Cab has uh, definitely gotten a little bit more of a going around uh, with a reissue of his, of his book um, in the last few years and a, uh, a biography that was a wonderful biography actually written by Lucy Sussex about him. Um, that book was something that, um, you know, actually was an international bestseller um, of its time. Uh, but I am really interested to know about uh, some of the women of crime. Um, certainly that's something that um, that we should be talking more about because it's certainly a genre that even as far back as the 19th century female writers were very much involved with. Um, but very, very soon we'll be joined by another writer of the, the criminal persuasion, although I don't believe he is a criminal, more his writing. Christian White will join me to talk about The Nowhere Child, his debut, a thriller about international kidnap, family secrets and cultish religious sects that involve snake wrangling, which um, which is something I'm keen to hear more about why he decided to include that in his book. I do like a good story with a snake in it. Um, that's all on backstory. And talking about crime, sovereignty was never ceded here in Australia. We're sitting on stolen land. Um, and I was really you know, privileged to get down to the Malt House and watch the uh, hilarious, blackly hilarious, black, blacky brown, uh, blacky, blacky brown. Um, I went, I laughed, I cheered. Um, Nakia Louie is a bloody legend um, and shout out to animation studio Oh Yeah Wow for some awesome, awesome, awesome interactive animation work. Um, get your ass down there. It's just some some great um, black exploitation craziness that, uh, that really kind of gets down to some, you know, hilarious revenge um, with a sort of, you know, quite important message underneath it all. So um, definitely go and see that. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm joined today by uh, writer Christian White who's here to talk about his uh, debut thriller, The Nowhere Child, which involves snake wrangling Christian cults, a missing child, an Australian woman who discovers her life is a lie. Christian, 
Where on earth did this story come from? And welcome to Backstory. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. And that was a fantastic introduction. It's, <laughs> when you sort of lay all the details out like that, it sounds like I'm a psychopath. And it is, a yeah. Little, a little, it <laughs> yeah. does. I do wonder sometimes uh, about crime writers. And, um, you know, look, don't they say criminal intent is really what it is that, um, you know, that gets you locked up? Because it's not, you know, crimes of passion. It's people who plan crimes and who then execute them. And it strikes me that, you know, maybe crime writers are those kinds of people, but just without the willingness to kind of commit the act. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we, we are allowed to sort of purge it on the page that <laughs> so it stops right. us from actually going out and uh, and doing it in real life. <laughs> I, I, I definitely hope that that is the case. Um, look, this is one of those books, though, that, you know, it doesn't have a very, you know, overt, um, obvious, you know, dark, dark, darkness um, in the way some books do. But there's that constant undercurrent of darkness, of things that aren't spoken about, of you know, of of secrets and lies. And that's really the essence, I think, of, of a good crime book is that sort of, you know, the crime and then the real crime. Yeah, I completely agree. When I'm, um, you know, I'm a big uh, thriller reader and horror reader and all that sort of stuff. And what, what I respond to isn't necessarily the this big sort of splashy, uh, brutal graphic murder or something on page one. I really like the, the kind of the eerie... Um, atmospheric uh sort of cases missing persons cases usually which is which is what this book is um yeah i kind of and i never when i set out to write it i never wanted it to be this really uh brutal or graphic book it goes to some pretty dark places but at the end of the day it's a crime that took place 30 years ago it's a missing persons case so it's not necessarily um yeah you don't have to deal there's some some sort of dark snake stuff that you have to deal with but it's there's no murder on page one yeah look i mean give snakes snakes get such a bad rap like i really do think you know they're kind of they're one of those animals that you know they're not that bad we're the bad ones exactly And, and i think that when we're cavemen we probably it's right to be scared of them because oh you know, it's instincts. Oh, they could hurt us, but now, really, we should just be. Uh, there's no reason anymore. I actually, None. handled my first snake only uh, this time last year, a little less than this, uh, maybe nine months ago or something, and. I was terrified for the first 30 seconds, but then as soon as it was sort of wrapped around me, it, they're really beautiful, amazing, gentle creatures. Uh, I was even giving its chin a little stroke and they're amazing. Yeah, it's they crazy. They are amazing. It's like a warm kind of muscle that's wrapped. Anyway, we're getting off the track completely, obviously both snake lovers. Um, but look, set this book up for us so people know what we're talking about. Yeah, so basically um, the, the Nowhere Child is about a, a woman in Melbourne, a teacher, who is approached by this sort of mysterious American accountant and he's investigating a kidnapping that took place uh, back in the 90s in this small town called uh, Manson in Kentucky and the town is... um it's it's sort of a, a an eerie small town, but it, 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 there's a, it's populated by a lot of uh, Pentecostal snake handlers who are these people who uh, worship God by handling uh, rattlesnakes and scorpions, and they drink poison. Uh, and basically, this American accountant says to the teacher, uh, "I think you're the girl who went missing from this town 28 years ago." And and Kim, the teacher, thinks initially, "Well, that's ridiculous," but she she sort of something is ignited and she sort of scratches the surface of her family and begins to realise a few things don't necessarily add up. So she she eventually travels back to Kentucky to kind of get to the bottom of this secret and um, and the chapters alternate between her story and the story back in the 90s of this town surrounding the kidnapping. Uh, it's hard to go on too much without giving too many spoilers mm-hmm. away, but, yeah, that's the general setup. 
Yeah, it's a really, you know, it's a kind of, it's one of those slow burn thrillers, I think, where it's like, you're not a huge amount is happening. There is a big kind of reveal early on. But then once things get going, you start to sort of, you know, unpack the real darkness at the core of the book. Yeah, Um, it's definitely, the pace definitely uh, uh, picks up as it goes along. It sort of takes its time and then just, just hopefully the momentum just keeps going until the end. The reveal, the reveal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I am really interested in how people people put these kinds of books together. Um, Like many people who embark on a writing project, um, I don't necessarily have a firm grasp of plotting. It's something I've come to quite late. Um, I really do love it now, writing down a plan, working out where things are going, but it's not something that came naturally to me. And I really do want to talk about, you know, this is your debut novel. Um, I can feel that it's been very heavily plotted. That's obviously something that you've gone into, but talk to me about your process writing a book like this. Yeah. So it, it, it all, um, this book was so dependent on plot because I wanted it to feel like a ton of stuff is happening uh, and, and I wanted all the threads to come together. So it's really important that uh, for me as well, part of my process is writing a really, really detailed plan, but then allowing myself to completely abandon it at certain points. So that was a big, so, so I took a very long time planning this had some fantastic, perfect things planned, uh, probably half of which I ended up abandoning because I've got this rule where um, it, uh, plot is one thing, but it really has to be populated by uh, believable and interesting characters. And, and that's what draws me to uh, my favourite thrillers, the ones that I really uh, love the characters. Um, so I have this really strict rule and it can be frustrating, but it's let character win over plot, which basically means if you've got some fabulous uh, third act moment planned, but it depends on this character doing something which is out of character, you have to abandon that plan mm-hmm. and, and follow. And it's, it sounds sort of, a, it's a, it sounds a little pretentious, but when you write characters, they do, they do take over and they do kind of lead the way and you get to know them and, and you start to realise, well, they wouldn't act in that way. So you, I, I always just listen to them over over plot and it can be super frustrating because in the planning stage you don't well I certainly don't know the characters very well yet they're they're names with little backstories but that's about it and so when I set set out I think well I know where they're going to end but but I often don't Uh, this book for example I had a completely different ending in mind but about halfway through I realized oh no it's not going to work and I just let the characters go so I guess to answer your question is plot is super important but I think also uh, allowing uh, it to be fluid as well is just as important. Yeah, it's, a, <clears throat> it's actually a really interesting way of, of talking about it because I think sometimes without knowing exactly why, you know, a plot-driven thing doesn't work, we we go, that's just not working and why do the characters feel so thin? So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that interplay between the characters but also how you get to know them is fascinating. I think I remember a Virginia Woolf quote um, about writing Mrs Dalloway where she says she kind of digs out these beautiful caves behind each of her characters to try and get to know them that kind of excavation I guess um, that goes into discovering a character it's probably really important in a book like this your your lead character who's um, whose name is Kim but dis- who discovers that she is really um, a child um, that was stolen many years ago Sammy went um, 
you know, she's obviously the person that you're coming into the book through, but you've really managed to flesh out quite a lot of characters. You slip perspective. You really do give us um, a lot more to, you know, I think what sometimes in other genre books can feel like very thin support characters. You've obviously spent a lot of time with them. Talk to me about the process of doing that. Do you actually write a ton of backstory as well for your characters or do you kind of try and do it like a, a short story writer where you you get into that mode and you're like, this person has got a lot more going on behind them than is on the page. Yeah, a a bit of both. And and I'm I'm glad you said that because it's so important to to me that they feel, all the characters feel real and and uh, flawed. There's no, no one's really good or bad. There are even, even the bad guys are kind of good and the good guys are kind of bad. And, but what I generally do with my main characters, I'll write uh, during the planning process, I will have maybe half a page or a page, which is basically uh, uh, half of that will be where they're from, what they do. There's really basic things that you don't, that, that really play a big part, but you don't, they're kind of boring to think of originally. And then I, then I really usually write the, the other half is basically the last year before the story starts. So basically where they are uh, in, in their head. I, I like the idea of dropping uh, dropping the reader into their world and having to uh, figure out what's been going on and not necessarily telling them that straight away. There's a character in it, uh, it's revealed very early on, he's a married man and it's revealed very early on that he's having an affair with a, a guy in, in this 1990s, uh, 1990s Kentucky town. So it's this sort of um, quite a taboo thing and... I wanted that to be a reveal. I didn't want to straight away say and even explore his his motivations and his reasonings. I just wanted to sort of drop drop the reader in. So I, I do uh, I do do a little planning, but really not much. Uh, as soon as I figure out how old they are, what they do, uh, what their name is, I really just get going and f- and trust myself to find to find the voice along the way. It is like. Um, uh, I think Stephen King had a, a quote too about uh, thinking of a story, so thinking of himself sort of as a, an archaeologist and he's not so much as making the story but he's dusting off all the bits and slowly letting it, ex, you know, expose. Uh, and that's really how I feel as well. I, I Quite often I will... Uh, I will write some dialogue or something and think, huh, that's a, that's a really good line. But it feels like I didn't come up with that. And now when I read back things I've written, some of it is mortifying, of course, like, oh, should have written that so much better. But other parts I think, oh, yeah, that, I don't know where that came from. Uh, you know, and my wife read the book. I mean, she's, she's read the book recently for the second, sort of second and a half time. And she said that um, she she just forgets that it's me uh, writing it, me who's written it, and and I think that's a really good sign. That's that actually I'm quite, letting the characters go. Yeah, that's a great compliment. I think to to kind of be that into the characters, or or it could just be that she's like, "Who are you?" Yeah. <laughs> um, if you've just joined us, uh, you're on Three Triple R. The show is Backstory. My name's Mel Cranenberg. I'm talking to uh, author Christian White about his debut novel, a thriller, The Nowhere Child, uh, which is out right now. Um, I do want to talk to you, Christian, about, you know, place in this novel and how you kind of build that up, but also, you know, um, research in general, which is always one of those sort of fraught things and can become a bit of a distraction to actual writing. So half of this uh, novel, you know, begins set in, in Melbourne, Australia. The other half is uh, is set in Kentucky in the US. How do you kind of build those um you know, those sites up, how do you, you build the landscape and the sense of place? Do you kind of, you know, Google Earth it? Do you travel there? Is it, are these 
places that you have a connection with? How do you build that stuff up? Yeah, it's uh, probably a bit of everything that you just said. Um, but with Kentucky in particular, there was, there was a couple of reasons. One uh, is sort of a practical reason, which was I was already obsessed with uh, Pentecostal snake handling and way before I realized it was even going to be in this book, I was, I've, I watch it on YouTube and it's one of my, you know, I get obsessed with these really specific things and, and, and go down the rabbit hole like a lot of us do. Uh, and that takes place only about two or three states. And one of those, those is Kentucky. So that was sort of a practical reason I wanted to take the story there because I wanted an excuse to explore that world. Um, but with Kentucky in general, I went there, uh, I spent a little tiny amount of time there uh, years ago and I have a few really really clear memories of the place and one of them is there's this place called Mammoth Cave which is this uh, a huge uh, network of caves it's the longest network of caves uh, in the world I think and I went on a tour and halfway down uh, you're in the middle and, and it's it's you know you've got these little lamps lighting the place and the uh, the tour guide says okay everyone stand really still we're going to turn all the lights off and they do that and there's this the darkness was so intense and so uh, thick and primal and heavy that that always always stuck with me uh, and and a lot of um, a lot of the book has to do with with memory and this uh, this theory called it's called decay theory and it basically the, the quick way to explain it is it suggests that memory fades over time uh, but when we create a memory um, we form it's called a neurochemical trace it's basically a thread that we sort of tug on when we want to recall that memory and it kind of it, it kind of explores the idea of does the memory decay or is it that thread? And in, in which case, if the thread breaks, we can't access that memory anymore, but we we it's still thumping around our head somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think you had a really nice description of that in the book where you sort of say it's sort of like a tea bag, but the string's broken off and exactly. the things floating around in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and look, you, I think, you know, this was quite well done because there are books where you sort of read them and you think that person did a lot of research in this area so they're determined to shoehorn as much of that in as possible whereas I think this was a nice subtle inclusion that you had that sort of tugged at you to extend that metaphor throughout the whole of the book. Yeah so when when um when the main character kind of imagines this little girl inside her head, and it's 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 those cave networks that I that that I that she sort of imagines them in. It's this big black void, which is how I imagine it, and sort of ties me. I don't say that in the in the book, but it it ties me to that place. So I think a lot of it's that as well. Just giving um, it is tempting because you research so so much stuff and and you you get to it you've got to make sure you don't just load it up with all these things that you find interesting and make you sound smart it's got to serve the story and the plot as well so there's a lot of editing involved so mm. I, I did I, an, an epic amount of research but uh as important as the stuff I put in is is the stuff that I I chose to leave out so yeah that's I think that answered your question I've no idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it does it does um it, you know it's also things like I think one of the characters was a, a is a pharmacist and reading through things like that you know you put in just enough detail to really make you feel as though make the reader feel as though you really know what you're talking about with that um you know with those kind of character traits do you sort of try and use things you already know about or you know do the, just enough research to kind of make it feel realistic yeah I, I do quite a bit of research and usually I try to choose without being kind of overt about it I try to choose a profession that um, suits 
who I want that character to be. Mm. So that the pharmacist, for example, is he, he's a bit torn between re- religion and and he sort of lost his faith a little bit. And uh, so I, I kind of use that to to inform the character. But also, I, yeah, I do research uh, about with that, for example, um, you know, what it's like to work in a pharmacy, but, ha- you know, an hour's research basically. Mm. But there's also things like... Um, at one point he is writing a prescription for someone and it's, it's just part of his day so it could be anything but it's it's a prescription for uh, antidepressants so it's for someone that we'll never meet but just just getting that getting those themes in early in a way that's you don't really notice and that sort of stuff comes back a bit later so that's important as well with research not only finding making it feel realistic but finding things that will serve and inform your story and i think all of that feeds back into that character so it's it's you're sort of feeding all this stuff into a machine and and hopefully the what comes out of it uh is is coherent and interesting and then you just follow that follow that person and see where they go now, I'm not a huge fan of the whole who are your influences question, but I do notice in this book you, um, you know, name check Stephen King at least a couple of times. At least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm thinking that is clearly, you know, obvious, obviously some uh, influence of yours I'm getting uh, creeping into this. But I do want to ask the question in terms of people who want to write this kind of, you know, narrative-driven, structured uh, crime style of novel, because this is a, you know, this is your debut and it's and it's very well kind of pulled together in a way that sometimes, you know, you feel as though debuts need a little bit of extra work. Um, I'm wondering what advice would you give, I guess, to people who are keen to write this sort of work? Is it to expose yourself to other crime writers or to other thriller writers I guess um, or you know is it to kind of try and develop your own voice what what advice would you give people yeah I think that the, the super basic advice which sounds boring on the surface is to read a lot and write a lot like you, you, you just need to read a lot of I, I would read a lot of you know that genre stuff the genre that you're trying to write in of course but also uh, you know I, I read a huge range of things and I think in little ways it all feeds in all feeds into my work um I think, uh, yeah, and and you just have to write a ton. Uh, this book was my the fifth manuscript I started, and only the second one I finished, and the first I thought was was good enough to show anybody at all. Um, and also the other part is the letting go. So, so writing it is is hard enough, but it, what I find much harder is when you've got that finished product, letting go enough to accept that it's not perfect. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a thing recently where I described. Uh, describe sort of sh- sh- revealing that part of yourself to someone as it's as like when you show yourself when you stand naked in front of someone for the very first time and you kind of have to go look it's it's not perfect there's plenty <laughs> wrong with it but this is what I've got you know how can it be improved you know and it's and that's a really really you're hard gonna thing. have to work with this exactly, yeah, exactly exactly it's not perfect <laughs> but but it's it's what yeah. I've got uh, so yeah, I think that's a big part of it too getting it out there and also yeah. accepting um it's never going to be perfect and even even when you get published such uh, the editorial process I was not prepared for at all it, it's it's pretty amazing so you, you you work with editors who are just trying to make you seem like a better writer they're trying to inform your own vision and they come up with these really genius things and so uh, re- rely on other people as well I think and yeah so the, the hardest thing though is opening that door and, and letting someone uh, letting someone else read it. That's a big See first step. Naked, so exactly, exactly. <laughs> Christian White, that's a really great place to leave this uh, conversation, but um, I do recommend um, lovers of thrillers and crime uh, getting their hands on The Nowhere Child. Christian White, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you so much story. for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure. 
Uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. Stick with us. Uh, you're going to be uh, hearing from Jackie Horwood, who is the Judge Wrangler for the 18th Annual David Awards. Uh, that's for Sisters in Crime. Um, there's an incredible long list of some 27 books. We're going to be talking all about that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory on 3 Bards, the show about books, the craft of writing, the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and there's been a very, very long list, some might say a criminally long list of books um, that have been released for the um, 18th Annual David Awards. That's a, 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 an award that's released as part of the Sisters in Crime um, celebrating the amazing work um, that women do in this genre. Um, it's a really incredible list of, of authors. I'm very, very keen to talk to our next guest, Jackie Horwood, um, who is the head judge wrangler. I think that's an official <laughs> title. It is, yep. Jackie, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm really intrigued, actually, by the list of books that's, um, that you've actually got um Long listed for the David Awards. I always love a long, long list. I oh, think it's a long short list. A long short <laughs> list. It's a it's a short, long list, long short list. Yes, yeah. we'll get that right. Um, I love that because it, it really does give um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realise just how important these lists can be in terms of helping authors mm. um shift units, if you like, get people interested in their books. It's a really tough world publishing. Um, you know, it can be hard to sell books. In Australia, I believe a bestseller is classic as a book that sells uh, 10,000 mm. copies or more. Mm. Um, we're a very small market in a lot of ways. So anything can help these authors. Um, so I always feel very warmly towards uh, awards that do this kind of publicity for for books that, yeah. um, you know, that are on their long or short lists. So let's talk a little bit more about um, what's here and about the awards themselves. Um, the books, some of them that I, I want to just pull out here that I thought were quite interesting was... Um, um, in the kind of debut book category and also in the non-fiction books, uh, are, you've included one um, which, you know, will be very familiar, I'm sure, to people. It's uh, Sarah Krasnerstein's The Trauma Cleaner, mm. One Woman's Extraordinary Life in Death, Decay and Disaster. That book attracted numerous awards, um, deservedly so. But I was actually really intrigued to see it here uh, listed, I guess, as a crime book. Why do you think this this one kind uh, of got included? We open up to all publishers to submit books that they feel would be um, worthy of being judged and Sarah's book was um, was forwarded to us so we take everything that that is um, brought to our attention we read them look in past years we have had long fruitful discussions over what constitutes a crime book what constitutes true crime and I think we can get bogged down sometimes in the complexities of the argument. On face value, Sandra's life in this book is impacted from crime on, um, by crime from start to finish, from the way she was treated in her childhood, which is you know constitutes child abuse when mm. you look at it, through her life um, and everything that happens to her without spoiling it for everyone who hasn't read it, it is impacted by crime. And what she does as a trauma cleaner is partly... Um, is clean up people people's crime scenes. So, sure, it's not a true crime book 
in that traditional sense of I'm taking a crime and I'm looking at it. It's but it is a woman's life that has been impacted by by crime and by the um, the effects of crime. So Absolutely. We, we've taken and look, you've got to, the quality of the writing of the book. You can't mm. you can't ignore it. It's a fabulous book. So Absolutely. On and that I, basis, yeah, definitely we've we've judged it. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I think, as I was just discussing with my last guest, the very best of crime books are not mm. really about the overt crime that they're discussing. It's the underlying one. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful podcast in the dark that um, I listen to. Um, it's in its second season, and the you know the journalist in that um, you know in the driver's seat, I guess, is really you know looking at things like you know police ineptitude mm. or um, you know justice not being served those things are the real crime beneath the, the crime mm. that's being investigated the, be, the best true crime are the ones that are not voyeuristically uh, focusing on what has happened to a person but it's a ripple effect and they look at the ripple effect so if you look at helen garner's writing or chloe hooper the best of that true crime is looking at of the the further impacts yeah, absolutely. There's a few. Um, I like the debut category here. Mm-hmm. Pip Smith's um, Half Wild is yeah. included. Um, you've got um, Gabrielle Koslovich's Whiteley yeah. on Trial. Fabulous book. It's yep. a really interesting... Um, Sarah Bailey's The Dark Lake. There's a really interesting mix of books um, that are listed in here. But I do want to talk about Sisters in Crime, mm. um, about the, the group. Talk to me a little bit about um, this organisation. Uh, it's been going since 1991. Um, it came about uh, um, the great American crime writer Sarah um, Paretsky started Sisters in Crime in America and we decided, well, my sisters who started it, started it in 1991, um, recognising the need for women crime writers to be promoted and advocated for. It was at a time where they weren't being recognised, they weren't appearing in the Ned Kelly Award um, lists, um, not being reviewed, not, you know, being ignored. So this was a chance to take our great writers, our great female crime writers, and promote them and advocate on their behalf. So that's where Sisters started and th- for many, many years have run fabulous events promoting women crime writers. Um, in the, and during those years, we've uh, created the David Awards, we've created the Scarlet Stiletto, which is a short story award, and from the Scarlet Stilettos, many women have got a uh, leg up and have gone on to publish books, people like Ellie Marnie and Tara Moss and Angela Savage, many, many people. Mm. Uh, It's a really, um, you know, it's sort of like the Stellar Awards, I guess, where we Mm. we look at, you know, the fact that, you know, to encourage, you know, people to see the diversity that's in front of them. Sometimes you need these sort of triggers, um, which also really do have genuine benefits, obviously. Um, You know, the kind of monetary support that people get, the publicity they Mm. get for their books um, can be incredibly valuable. Um, I do want to, you know, talk about a little bit about the... um, the name of the this David. award, much like the the Stella Miles Franklin, yes, um, yeah. you know, another great literary historical figure, um, you know, a, a, a female writer um, from this country. I wasn't entirely aware of the um, of the author behind the name of the David Awards. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, yes, I can. It was named after author. Ellen Davitt, who wrote Australia's first mystery book. Uh, Force and Fraud and was published in 1865 and uh, Lucy Sussex the historian and um, one of the sisters has done a lot of work uncovering the history of Ellen David and she I think she was the one who found the grave site and um, found the history of Ellen so from that we we decided to adopt Ellen as our you know spiritual godmother and um, use her as the as the name of the awards and I I was down at Clune's um, uh, book town sorry I was 
gotten the noun, uh, Clunes Book Town, it came across the Grattan Street um, publishers and they've republished Force and Fraud. So that it is available if you want to read it. So yeah. Force and Fraud is um, Ellen Davitt's book. First, first book, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's really, yeah. it's so fascinating because I think um, I did mention earlier in the show that uh, Lucy Sussex's book mm. on Fergus Hume, Blockbuster, um, was a really great sort of homage to that, to, you know, the late 1800s in Melbourne. Mm. Um, this particular um, crime writer or this particular mystery writer Fergus Hume and his history which was fascinating Um, but also you know obviously Sussex has done a lot of work um, talking about female crime writers and there were a lot actually in the 1800s in in Australia in the world Um, and I think that that's a really fascinating thing it is kind of something that you know there's a lot of you know, column inches devoted to the fact that crime is such a huge genre and, you know, women are the dominant kind mm. of... Uh, readers and writers. Readers yeah. and writers <laughs> yeah. of crime. Talk to me about why you think that oh, is. What, what is the attraction of crime? I mean, we can all, like, sort of think, like, puzzles are so mm. great to sort of work out, but what do you think? Look, well, you could write PhDs on this, and I think people have. <laughs> It is, and it's no always doubt. a topic that comes up at various um, crime writing um, festivals. Why, why are we attracted to it? And I think th- there's a, I mean, there's a few strands of thought, but I think this is a safe place to work through the evils of the world, the things around that you, you that you can't control. Crime's a great way of looking at um, social issues, whether it be family violence, whether it be um, violence against women, all, so- all sorts of things. It's a great place to tear that apart and read it and think about it. Um, usually, there's a solution at the end. It is nicely wrapped up, not always, but it is a good place to to, to tear apart things that are happening around us. And generally, crime books are contemporary. They're looking at social issues that are happening around us. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know. I guess that's um, working through. Uh, you know, as uh, Christian White said earlier, mm. working through um, some of the kind of dark stuff in our mm. minds and. Um, you know, trying to kind of find a framework for it as well is a is a really interesting way of thinking about things. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR, Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined by Jackie Horwood, who is uh, the head judge wrangler. Um, <laughs> I love that you've put that actually in your material <laughs> um, for the 18th Annual David Awards, um, which is uh, being uh, put out by Sisters in Crime. Tell me what you know about some of the other books that are on the um, the long short list. Well, this year was interesting because it was the first year we opened up to self published books, so we got about twenty self published books, and that you know that that's an added um, twenty extra books of reading. So that was that was an interesting thing to deal with. Um, I think this year we had an amazingly strong non fiction section. Um, those the true crime books that we have uh, really strong, really well-written, um, well-observed books. Um, a lot of a lot of the, the themes um, that we see in the adult and the particularly in the YA, the young adult books, there's a big strong theme of setting um, books within the country, um, country and rural towns, and taking that idea of uh, the claustrophobic small town and growing up and not being able to escape your past or your past secrets. So that's a strong theme within the books. That were that's been fabulous to read. I think we've expanded past crime just being in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, we now find crime 
books occurring everywhere, rural and regional Australia, far north Queensland, as in Candace Fox's book. Um, we've got some great writers over in Perth who look at Perth. So it is expanding past the, those central sort of crime spots of crime and of Sydney and Melbourne and looking at all aspects of, of, of life in Australia. Do yeah. you think that's down to actually having people from those areas um, submitting or do you think it's that we finally realise that they're really freaking think, eerie places? Yes, I think... You're right. That's just we've just discovered that they're really eerie, scary places, <laughs> yeah. and we might. Well, we we have that fear of the outback. We have that fear of being lost in unusual places, and people are um, are playing with it in their books. But and I don't we, feel like. Look, it is one of those books. I think some, particularly Australian authors who are from you know we're largely urban mm-hmm. dwelling, um, you know, groups. Often their first novels are set in a kind of outback setting, and it's that kind mm. of you know classic and somewhat you know, try coming of age thing or, you know, finding yourself or getting lost or all sorts of things. But I don't feel that necessarily from the books that are coming out now. I really do feel like that sense of place is a more honourable sense of yes. place. Like you're actually yeah. really there. Um, you're getting involved in that that kind of location. But there is a kind of practical reason, I guess, isn't there, to have oh, yeah. a small town. There's Absolutely. A, you know, the cast of characters is much you more manageable. You can create what you want. You can create what you want. It can look how you want it. You can have the cast of characters that you would like. And, yeah, definitely, definitely it's, um, yeah. So, look, I did ask, um, you know, Christian to give me some tips for people who were thinking about kind of foraying foraying into this space. I love that you've included self-published books here because it is really important to note working with an editor is hugely important. Um, That's part of the the wonderful thing about being involved in a publishing Mm. house. Um, But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, there aren't incredibly worthy books that don't Mm. necessarily get picked up. Um, So can you talk to me about what you think makes a good crime book and what kinds of things you're looking for? for when you're judging a book? Uh, I think crime readers love great characters, um, really strong um, characters. We like women with agency, not, not, uh, not female characters that have things happen to them and they're, uh, they've got no way of helping themselves. They're, they're women who have, have agency, whether you like them or not, because, you know, look at Sarah Bailey's The Dark Lake. Her main character is not particularly likeable, but she has agency. Um a sense of place is always a great thing in crime. Where are we? What, what, what streets are we walking down? Who are, what are the surroundings around us? Um, I think tension and pacing is a huge thing in crime books. Not everyone gets it right, but that sense of, of terror and, um, and, and, and fear when you're reading about what's happening to people and what people are going through. So that sort of pacing and, and Emma Viskich does it really well in her books. You, you really ride along that tension and that and that um, sense of urgency in her books. So you know, great characters, great plot, a sense of place, a sense of um, tension and pace and urgency are, are really good aspects of crime books. Mm. And another yeah. thing that I'm you know really increasingly loving are books where you know there isn't necessarily a big you know, dark, obvious crime. There's just mm. that really kind of stomach-clenching mm, yes. tension that's been built up. How do people do it that do oh, it well? I wish I knew. I knew, wish I knew. <laughs> Could we bottle uh, that somehow, drink uh, a there's bit? A, there's, a, there's a book that's not on this list that I read for a sister's um, panel on young adults, Sarah Epstein's uh, Small Spaces, and she did, does it really, really well. And that, that, that dread that you have, you know where it's going and you're thinking, oh, no... And you go with it. So I look. I don't know how people do it. I think you need to 
you need to get Emma Viskic in to talk about it because she does mm-hmm. it really well and she talks about the rhythm and the pace and looking at where things need to speed up and where it needs to slow down. And she's a musician by trade, so she I think she understands it. Mark Brandy's Wimmera is, I know it's a bloke, I'm talking about a bloke, but he, he does it really well, that sense of dread you get from the first chapter of, oh, I know where this is going and I don't want it to happen. Mm. Yeah. An author I talked to once sort of said, you've got to leave, you know, just stop midway through, mm. you know, just cut something off. So finish writing the thing and then work out the point at which you yeah. really need to know what the next sentence is going to be and that's where you chop it off. Yeah. And it's that sense of unfulfilled kind of, yeah. I have to you know, keep expectation. Yeah. Exactly. So so building that up, I guess, is an art in itself. It is, it is. <laughs> this is such a fantastic topic. Um, keep an eye out for the Daffod Awards. When oh. are they going to be oh, announced? Yes. If I don't mention it. Come or kill me. It is on Saturday the 11th of August at Swinburne University of Technology. Um, you can book tickets through the Sisters in Crime web- website. That's sistersincrime.org.au and you can, event, uh, you can book your tickets there. On that night, we'll have all the um, awarding of the books, but also a fabulous interview between Lee Redhead, who's a local crime writer, and Cecil Jogazan, who's a Danish crime writer who's out at the moment. So that'll be really, really a lot of fun. That's great. A little yeah. bit of Scandi crime oh, in the mix. Everyone <laughs> loves that. Um, Jackie Horwood, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm really keen to find out um, where these crime awards go, um, but also keeping an eye out for the amazing wealth of incredible, mm. um, you know, non-male writers yeah. of crime that are out there. Yeah, and there's lots of them. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thanks, Mel. You're listening to 3RRR. This is Backstory. And um, I'm afraid it is the end of the story. I'd like to thank my wonderful guests who joined me for this criminal hour. Uh, Christian White, uh, the author of The Nowhere Child, a great thriller. And of course, Jackie Horwood, uh, the head judge wrangler from the 18th David Awards. Uh, that's Sisters in Crime celebrating amazing writers of crime who are not men um, and who are doing fantastic work at it. Three, triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.